chapter 5. In Ephesians, Paul spent the first three chapters, again, I'm going to go over this so repetition gets it in your mind. He spent the first three chapters talking about the wealth that we have spiritually and practically because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the door. He is the the one. He is the, the, the sacrificial lamb. He's the one that gives us entrance into the holy of holies where we now have a relationship with, with God, with the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, the creator of everything. He has a relationship with us. He pursued us and he loved us enough to give his most precious possession in our place, his son, his blood. And so here we have him talking about the wealth that we have because of the relationship with, that we have with Jesus and all that he has done. And then he talks about our walk. Okay, so if all these things are true, what does that mean for me practically? Now, if you were raised the way that I was, and you've taken classes or if you've learned things in school, many times I get frustrated in the theoretical classes. I took uh, chemistry. It's all theory, and it's all these numbers and stuff like that. And then there's physics. And then there's, and there's all these theories about how to do things. I don't want theories. I want to do it. I want to live it out. I want to, you know, instead of studying how much volume of water can go through a water pipe that's 10 feet long and half an inch in diameter, I want to see it. I want to do an experiment. That's, that's me. That's the way that I think. And so Paul's the same way. He has all these theological ideas, but he goes, well, how do we put these to practice? Because if I know that God is love and he wants me to walk in his love, what does that look like? How does that live out? You know, what does love mean? And so as you look and, and you think about all these things, Paul's going to answer those questions. He's going to give us the ability to walk in these things, and he's going to do it with practical advice about everyday relationships that you can all relate to. So in Ephesians chapter 5, he starts this section, and this is what we need to remember. He starts this section by saying, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. That word imitator means to mimic. It's what your children do. And we talked about that last week, how sometimes when our children mimic us, it's like, hey, that's cute. And sometimes it's like, I can't believe that they picked up that thing that I do, and now I see it on them, and that's, that's not good. It's embarrassing, especially when they do it in public. But do you know how most children learn to draw? I heard this this week, and it kind of blew it up. For, it kind of uh, opened this up to help me understand a little bit better. They they take a piece of paper, and I remember it now that I heard someone say this. They take a piece of paper with a drawing already on it, and they give you transparent paper. They lay it over it, and then the child traces it. That's how they mimic drawing. They're able to use the pencil and move it in a way that, that traces the image that's behind it. And as believers, sometimes we think of following Jesus, and we overcomplicate it. And what he's saying is mimic or trace my steps. How do I live like Jesus lived? Look at Jesus and mimic what he does. Pretty simple, right? But we overcomplicate it. We, we over-spiritualize it. And sometimes we, we really lose it because it's too hard. And it is hard to live for Jesus, to imitate a perfect person. But it says there, be imitators of God as his dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. How do I walk in love? 
Christ has loved us, so walk in love like he did. Do what he did. And it says there, and given himself for us. He sacrificed himself, an aroma, and excuse me, an, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Okay, so we talked about last week how that's kind of like the Old Testament examples in Leviticus 1, 2, and 3, how the, the sacrifices were made, and they were burned on the altar, they were prepared, and then they were burned, and there was an aroma that went up from that, the smoke. They would burn the fat. You know, if you guys have, especially after deer season, you know, you take the, the, the fillets off of the, the back strap or whatever, and you, you put it in the grease, and there's an aroma that comes from that, right? You smell that, and you're like, man, dinner's coming. There's an aroma to the Lord that's pleasing like that. Okay, but that's, okay, we don't make sacrifices anymore. How do I live that out? Because we don't kill animals to make sacrifice to the Lord. What do we do? Well, we live for the Lord. Romans chapter 12, Paul alludes to the story of Isaac where he was offered up on an altar by his dad as an offering to the Lord. Now, the Lord didn't have him go through with it and kill his son, but the idea is no longer do we have to give a dead sacrifice. This lamb has been sacrificed for us, Jesus Christ. We now get the opportunity to live as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before the Lord. And so he says, walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an aroma and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all clean, uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for the saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So the idea is, is that to imitate Jesus, one of the things we can do, we saw the list of things not to do with our tongues. He says, give thanks with your tongues. And I think that's important because Jesus, over and over again, before something great would happen from him, he was always giving thanks. Think about the feeding of the 5,000. He, he accepted from this little boy that brought his lunch. He's like, we got all these people to feed. What do we have? And this little boy goes, well, I've got this amount of bread and I got some fish. And it was not enough for 5,000 people. But Jesus took it, he broke it, the bread, and he gave thanks to the Lord. And then it, he filled the baskets and sent out the 12 apostles to feed 5,000 people. He started by giving thanks. Sometimes the biggest miracles happen right after giving thanks. And so in the same way, instead of doing all these things with our tongues, he says, rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor a covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. And so the idea is that when we are not thankful, we have a tendency to go outside of the realm that God has allowed us to be in, and we start taking things that are not ours. We'll steal because we're not thankful for what we have. We will, uh, we will covet our neighbor's wife because we're not thankful for the wife that God's provided us. We will do all of these things and we'll speak against the Lord, really, instead of giving thanks. We'll complain. And there were people in that day that basically were telling the Christians, there's no big deal, you can do all those things and still follow the Lord. And he says, don't let the... 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, don't be partakers with those that say that these things are okay. They're not. And then he says in verse 8, and I know I'm reviewing what we studied last week, but it all leads into the passage that we're studying this week. He says, For you were once darkness, reminding them, this is where you came from. You started in the darkness. You didn't start this life as, as a light. You started in darkness. But now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Those who walk in the light are good and righteous and truthful. He says, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. He says, those who walk in the light want to know what pleases the Lord. He says, find out what is acceptable to the Lord and do it. It's that simple, right? Well, not always, right? Because society that we live in and the the people that we hang out with, they kind of tend to blur the lines. And so he says, but find out what is acceptable to the Lord. He doesn't say, find out what's acceptable to your friends. He doesn't say, find out what's acceptable to your coworkers. He says, fear the Lord. Have a healthy respect for the Lord. Care what he thinks above anyone else. Steve, you're always saying that. Live for an audience of one. And I like that. He says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather expose them. If you will live for the Lord, you'll do what pleases Him just by your actions, just by your lifestyle. It will expose those who are walking in darkness. You won't be trying to preach against them. You will just be living next to them, and it will reveal to them and to others around them that there's something that should be changed. He says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Isn't it interesting that we want our kids to get home by a certain time at night? right? I, I've heard so many people, my parents included, that said, hey, after 11 o'clock at night, usually there's nothing good going on. And I say that because ever since town and country closed down there on the other end of town, and there's no more lights on the parking lot, guess what? <laughs> it's increased. It hasn't gone down. There are always vehicles over there, and it's like I've gotten home late at night sometimes, and it's like one in the morning because I'm coming home from my parents or something's going on. Driving down 72, I pull up to that parking lot, and there's cars, they're just hanging out. Guess what? They're probably not doing anything good. Because if they were, they'd be at home with their parents. But my point is that don't be in fellowship with those that are working works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But also, with all of that said, remember, you were once darkness. And I, I have to remind myself of that rather than saying, oh, I can't believe they're doing it. I shouldn't be surprised at all because that was me in high school. That was me in college. God had to do a work in my heart and make me recognize that things needed to change if I was going to be right before his eyes. And so he says, um, for it is shameful to speak of these things. But verse 13, all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. In other words, they're revealed. It's like shining a flashlight. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, quoting Isaiah 60, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And then, as we move forward in verse 15, he says, See then that you walk circumspectly. Some of your versions might say wisely. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. 
He says, see then that you walk circumspectly. And we kind of dissected that word last week. It means to be carefully and exactly. Walk with wisdom. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Don't sleepwalk. And many people are walking through this life and it's just being taken away as a vapor because they're not actively seeking the Lord. They're just kind of on coast. It's like if you're on on a river with a waterfall on it and you're fishing, and you're doing a little bit of that, and you get going downstream a little bit. You know the waterfall's there, but you didn't take an oar. That's not wisely. That's foolishly. Knowing that the end leads to destruction. And those who are walking in darkness, whether they realize it or not, they are on a slip and slide to hell. It will be easy. It will be thrilling. It will be fun until the end when it leads to destruction. And so we need to walk wisely as believers. Therefore, he says in verse 17, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The idea there is that we are to not be fools anymore, but to be wise. He says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Use your brain, find out what God's purpose is, and live in it. Then he goes on, interestingly enough, and he says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks, there's that one again, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. There's that other phrase, the fear of the Lord again. So he says, walk wisely, and then it, remember the key of this chapter is in verse 1. It says, be imitators of God as dear children. So the idea is that God wants us to walk wisely. He wants us to be awake. He wants us to be sober. But then he tells us all these things to do, which are impossible without being filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't want to please God unless we have the Spirit of God within us and He gives us a new heart and we want to please the Father. But then He says, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine. So many times you might have heard this and it goes off on this. They'll jump into Leviticus 10 and they'll go to these places about drinking and they will completely derail people that like to have a beer once in a while. That's not what this passage is about. It's not a um, prohibition on drinking ever. Now that said, I do not drink. That's because that was my struggle before Christ. God told me one day when I was reading this very passage, you're done. And here's why. He says here, do not be drunk with wine. Now we think of that word drunk. We think of some guy stumbling around and we think of some guy that that he, he was getting wasted, right? And that's what the word dissipation means. He says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. That word practically just means it's a waste. But what he says is, do not be drunk with wine. The word drunk there means to be filled with. And anytime you see filled with in the Bible or the word filled, it means to be controlled by. That's the idea. What controls you? The idea is in contrast to the next verse where it says, but be filled with the Spirit of God. Don't be controlled by liquor. Don't be controlled by alcohol. Same could be said about don't be controlled by methamphetamines. 
Don't be controlled by anything that can put you under its control and rule you. That's what people are doing when they drink so much that they can't control themselves. They can't control themselves because the alcohol is taken over. But he says, be filled with the Spirit. And the word there in the Greek means to be continually filled. A continuous filling. It's no longer just the coming upon of the Spirit or the coming alongside to convict you of sin, but now it's the filling of the Spirit of God where we say, Lord, I am willing to be filled with you. You can't be filled with anything you're not willing to be filled with. In the Old Testament, there were many times where God, it says of himself, was filled with wrath and judgment against his people because they had disobeyed. In the New Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were filled with anger and wrath towards Jesus. And at the point that they were filled with anger and wrath, they were controlled by their anger and wrath, and they said, let's find a way to get rid of this guy, which led to them putting him to death, right? Think about it in the book of Acts. The apostle Paul was preaching the gospel. The Jews were filled with envy. They were envious of Paul and this following that he was gathering as he shared the good news about Jesus. So because they were filled with envy, you know what they did? They, they had him arrested and they wanted him killed. And so that is what controlled the Jews. That is what controlled the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's what controlled the Lord was his wrath, his righteous indignation against sin. And so the question becomes... Are you controlled by something other than the Holy Spirit? And if that is the case, the fruit will be that of dissipation. It will be waste. It will be destruction. But let's not spend too much time on that because we already know that, most of us. Some of us have experienced it personally. But he says this. He says, but be filled with the Spirit of God, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So let's hear what the fruit is of being controlled by the Holy Spirit. How do I know if I'm being controlled by the Holy Spirit? He's given us three things. Verse 17, excuse me, not 17, 19. He says, you will have joy. One of the ways to tell if you have joy or not is you will be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. How do I know if my daughter's heart's right? If she's got joy, she's running around the house singing every little song. She's singing Jesus Loves Me. She's singing, um, trying to think of some of the other songs she sings. But she's got songs in her heart. For a while, she was singing um, Glory in the High, uh, Glory, one day we got in the car and it was 10 minutes of that. Now, I'm thankful that the Lord had joy in my daughter's heart, but I got, I was, it was robbing me of my joy. I was, I was over it. I was like, uh, sing Jesus Loves Me, sing anything. The idea is, is that when we have and are filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit, there will be a melody in my heart. You ever hear that song? <laughs> These songs keep coming up as I'm teaching. You know, there's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Peace not I. I can't remember. I'll stop there. But my point is, 
is that those hymns, those spiritual songs, the songs you hear on Joy FM, the songs that you sang when you were growing up in church, the, the songs that were memory verses maybe that you learned in children's church, the beauty of those things is that they're written on your heart. And when you have joy, those things come out. When you are drunk with something else, when you're controlled by something else, you know what comes out? This kind of thing, like craziness. You know, you're unhappy. You're, you know. So the idea is that God wants us to be controlled by His Spirit. And when we're controlled by His Spirit, we'll have joy. We will give thanks. Notice he says there in verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be able to give thanks for everything. Everything. That's a beautiful thing. If you can give thanks, you've gained a whole lot. And I say that because Paul would write to Timothy later, and he would say, godliness with contentment is great gain. When you're content with what you have, you will be thankful for it. When you're filled with the Spirit of God, you'll have contentment. I I don't know about you guys, but I like gain. Just the word gain gets me all excited. I like to gain things, you know. Uh, But the beauty is, is that many things can be gained that are not practical and physical. We can gain peace and joy in our homes by gaining contentment. That's something that God can give us. And then he says this, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submission. So it's three things that will show that you are controlled by the Spirit is you will be thankful, you will have joy, and you will be submissive. Submissive to the Lord. Now we're getting ready to go into a section that's kind of controversial. It talks about the marriage relationship. But keep in mind what he just said in verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Really, you're submitting to the Lord, and because of that, you follow his order. I love that. Because when we are submitted to our high commander, we don't mind listening to whoever our general is that's over our brigade. And in that case, he's going to talk about marriage. So in verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. How many guys do you know that haven't been to church a day in their life, they got this one memorized? Somebody in prayer this morning was praying about the Lord giving them the ability to memorize Scripture. I've heard lots of guys quote this one that don't even know Jesus. They're like, hey, wives are supposed to submit, right? And who wouldn't want that, right? Who doesn't want to be a king in their own castle? But who's the king of a Christian castle? It's Jesus submitting to one another in the fear of God. And so that's, that's the key point. But then he says wives. Now, in the original translation, he does not say wives submit to your own husbands. What he says is wives to your husbands. So after verse 21, where he says submitting to one another in the fear of God, the original in the Greek says wives to your husband. So it's implied that submission is the key to this section. Submitting to God as the head and then submitting to one another. Now, I want you guys to notice as we read through this, there's way more spoken to husbands than there is wives. There's actually repetition because we don't listen. That's the Holy Spirit knowing humankind, right? He says, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife And then he compares it to, he says, as also Christ is head of the church. And he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. 
So if your husband tells you to do something that is sinful, back away. You don't have to do it disrespectfully, but if your husband would ever tell you to do something that's sinful, you don't have to submit to that. But if your husband tells you to do something that's within the confines of following the Lord and it's not sinful, you should do it. Because your husband is worthy of being submitted to? No. Let me underline that. No. Let me put it in bold. No. It's not based on whether or not your husband is a good husband. And I say that because wives of non-believing men, according to Scripture, should submit to their husbands in the Lord. Now, again, if their husband tells them to do something that's against the Lord, outside of the, the safety of following and obeying His commands, then they don't have to do it. But what I love about this is if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter speaks to the same thing. He talks about submission to husbands. What's the point if my, my husband's an ungodly man? What if he's a sinful man? What if he, you know, all these things. What if he's a big turd? Well, guess what? If you're married to a guy, he probably is at some point or another, or he might have a pattern of it. Husbands will never be perfect. If you're expecting that, uh, you're setting them up to fail. Just going to say that. Ask my wife. She'll be ready to pray with you afterwards because she can pray for you knowingly, knowing what a, tur- a turd husband is like. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, he says, Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some of your husbands do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. I love that. When they observe your chaste or your pure conduct accompanied by fear, the idea is not fearing your husband but fearing the Lord, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart within, excuse me, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. And he gives an example, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and do not, uh, and are not afraid with any terror. The idea is submitting to your husband sometimes is hard. I'm going to say that a lot of the time that it is. But the Lord commands women to do that, not because the husband is better than her, just because that's his order. It's his design. God created the man And out of the man, he brought forth woman. Not out of his head, so that they butt heads all the time, and not out of of his feet, so he'd walk on her all the time, but out of his side, so they could respond to one another and be co-laborers, work together. Just like the potato race. Not the potato race. The the, What's that? The the one-legged race. That's the one I'm going. The one-legged race. They tie their legs together, they put their arms around one another, and they run for it. Now, I've seen couples where this does not work physically. It just it doesn't pan out. You, many of you have met my friend Eric. He's like 6'5", and his wife is like 3 feet tall. Now, that's an exaggeration, but I mean, they are, I mean, so for them to get together and do that, like she's, you know, being pulled in every direction, and, and he's like tripping on her, and it, it's not a fast race. But spiritually, the idea is that we would never be unequally yoked. So hopefully, singles... 
If you're looking for a husband or wife, you're not looking for someone that's not also a believer in Christ. Because to submit to one another in the fear of God, if you marry somebody that does not follow the Lord, is not filled with the Holy Spirit or controlled by the Spirit, guess what? You're setting yourself up for a civil war from the beginning. So don't succumb to that temptation. It will never work. And there might be years and years and years for women that would be in that situation where they have to submit to a turd husband because of their own disobedience to the Lord to marry somebody that knows the Lord. So then, keep your finger in 1 Peter because, men, there's going to be something in there for you. It's going to be a little heavy. Get ready. Be all right. But then back there in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 25, now that we've read that short passage to women, let's read the one to men. Husbands, love your wives. Notice there, it does not say respect your wives. It says love your wives. Why does it say that? Because we like to love the way that we like to receive love. Men like to be respected, and their wives, wanting to be loved, always love their husbands and tell them how much they care about them. And, but the reality is, is that men, they, they don't necessarily always go, hey, that, that's my favorite. I love being cherished. No, we want to be respected. And that's God's calling to women. Respect your husbands. But then he says to wives, love your husbands, love your wives. Because that's not our tendency. Lavish upon them. Tell them how much you adore them. Thank them for doing things for you, yes. But also show signs of affection. And not just because you want to spend time in the bedroom. Spend time loving your wives with no strings attached just to show them that you love them deeply and care about them. He says this. He says, Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, are you willing to die to your ambitions to love your wives, men? Are you willing to lay down and die for your wives? And I'm not talking about, I'd take a bullet for her. Many of us would. But are you willing to live for her? Many of us are willing to die for our spouses, but are you willing to live for your spouses? When you live for your spouse, it's going to cost you. You won't be able to go fishing as often. You won't be able to do all, you know, you, you're going to have to give up a Saturday to watch the kids so that they can go do what they want to do. Or go do something with them that you would never want to do. You're going to have to take a trip to JCPenney's. You know, are you willing to live for your wives? Now, I say that full and well, knowing that it's just a couple weeks ago. My dad said that that was the reason he had a stroke was because he went to JCPenney's twice in one week. <laughs> and after walking into JCPenney's once this winter, I could see it, you know? I mean, it's like overloaded there. There's clothes everywhere. There's no order. You just walk through and you're like, I got helicopters for sale by scarves. And you're just like, what is this? But my point is, is that we, many of us are willing to die for our wives and we don't need to die. We, be willing to live for your wife. Be willing to sacrifice a Saturday morning and make her breakfast instead of running out the door to go hunting or whatever. And I say that as a man who needs to work on that, okay? So he says, um, Jesus' love for the, the church should be the way that we love our wives. And step one, Jesus showed his love for the church by sacrificing himself. And step two... He says here that he, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. 
So there is the dying or letting go of some things in your life, letting them die so you can live for your wife. But there's also the idea of sanctification love. There's the love that brings life, and then there's the love that continues to cleanse your bride. The bride of Christ, the church, is continually being cleansed as we apply the water of the word to our lives. That's why we encourage you all the time, be reading the word of God because that is what cleanses us and continually washes our feet as we walk through this dark and dirty world. But for us as men, one of the things we need to be able to do is do the gallant things like go shopping. Yeah, that's rough, right? Or... On top of that, we need to also be willing to spend time praying with our wives. That sanctifying love is praying with and reading your Bible with, reading the Word of God. And that's something that Kelly and I were in the the habit of from the very beginning was praying with one another. We did it every night before we get off the phone. If we went out on a date, we prayed before we parted and went to our own homes. But the other thing we can do is also pray for one another when we're not together on the way to work. And another thing that Kelly and I, we really need to grow in is reading the Word of God together. Because the Word of God is filled with the Spirit of God. And when we intake the Word of God, the Spirit of God rests in us and we are filled with Him. So as we're doing that, we're cleansed, we're washed by the water of the Word. So husbands, we've got a big task. He holds us to the fire like He does not our wives. Because we are responsible for our households and their spiritual well-being. Now, i got to confess to you, as a man being raised in the culture we're in, my first inclination is to make sure that they have provisions, a warm house, food on the table, all those things. That's, I'm man, I go kill and eat, right? We bring, the, bring home the bacon. That's what we've been raised to do. And that's an important thing. Thessalonians says if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. You know, Paul's pretty harsh on those guys. Don't be lazy. Don't live off the system. Live for the Lord. And one of the ways you can live for the Lord is by providing for your family. But that's the thing that we always focus on. But as men, God has given us a spiritual responsibility to feed and to wash our family in the Word of God. Men, lead your families. Where you lead, they will go. You know, down the road, you're going to see where you are really leading them versus where you are actually leading them. And so, um, or where you thought you were leading them. So, in, in, back in Ephesians, and I feel like I'm all over the place, so I apologize. He says, so husbands, verse 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, set apart for the work of the Lord. That's what holy means. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, and he quotes from Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, he says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So the idea is, is that when we love our wives, men, we are really loving ourselves. 
when we pour our lives into loving our wives and, and teaching them about the Lord and encouraging them to do what God's called them to do, we're really loving our own flesh. He quotes from Genesis. He says, the two shall become one flesh. They shall leave and cleave. The idea of leaving and cleaving is breaking away from and becoming one together. A, a life that has been essentially like two pieces of construction paper that are glued together. Some people compare it to welding. If you're a construction guy or a welder, welding might be uh, more of something that you can relate to. But I think of two pieces of paper that you put a line down and you glue them together. When those two pieces of paper are glued together, they essentially become one piece of paper. And a lot of people would argue, they say, no, no, that's, that's two pieces of paper glued together. They get all technical. My answer to that person would be, that's fine. Take them apart. If you can take them apart after they've been glued together and both pieces of paper are exactly as they were before they were glued together, I'll say, okay, it was two pieces of paper. But if you take two pieces of paper and you glue them together and then you try to separate them, what happens? Both pieces of paper are forever changed and will never be the same. The same is true in marriage. People are drastically wounded. They don't even realize it when they decide, I'm going to be divorced. Now, there is provision for divorce in the Old Testament and in the New, but it's a concession. It's never God's best. When a divorce happens, and anybody that's been through one, experienced one because they were children, and a result of divorce, um, you all know that once two marriages are ripped apart, two people are ripped apart, they were one flesh, and now they're two incomplete people that have been scarred for life. And that happens. And that's not something to, to make fun of. It's, it's a reality of the culture that we live in. It's become okay. It's become the norm rather than not. But the reality is two become one flesh. And so if a, the, the application is that Paul's saying, look, you're one flesh with your wife. So if you do your best, men, to invest in your wife spiritually as much as you want to invest in your family by providing for them, guess what? Spiritually, you will grow as well. You'll both grow together, you'll be equally yoked, and you'll be free to do what God has prepared you and made you to do. You'll be able to walk in the works that he's prepared beforehand that you should live in them. And so, husbands, love your own wives just as Christ loves the church, sacrificially, sanctification, cleansing them. But what I want to point out this morning is that Many times people get all up in arms. They get their fur all rustled because here's what happens. They go, well, why do I have to submit to my husband? That doesn't make any, you know, and, and we all go, well, it's because husbands think they're better than women or, or wives. But it's not because of that. God didn't say, you know, man, you're better than, than women, and so we want you to rule over them. That's not God's purpose. It's for functionality. It's not because of superiority, it's because of functionality. So men, don't get a big head. There's all kinds of instruction here because um, apparently even in Paul's day, they were doing it wrong. They were focusing on all the wrong things. And wives, they were also speaking to you because wives have a tendency to want to rule over their husbands. It's back there in Genesis. Let's turn there. Genesis chapter um, 3 or 4, I think. One of those first ones. If you're reading along with us, this should be fresh on your mind from this week's reading. 
was it Genesis 2? I'm testing you guys. I already know where it's at. <laughs> if you believe that, I got another one for you. So verse 27, chapter 1. God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created a male and female. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we get the kind of the, the mountaintop view of creation of human beings. And then it says there... Um, Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, chapter 2, to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So Adam was really the only one given the commandment. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. So it was God's purpose to bring two people together to be co-responders. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And he named them. Whatever Adam called each living creature was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. The idea is equality, comparable, a co-responder, someone to, to meet and to be able to respond differently than he does, but equal in opposites. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place, the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, wow. That's what he really said. He's like, whoa, check that out. All of a sudden, all the he saw all the animals, and he was like, okay, that's a, that's a cow, and... That's an elephant or whatever he called them. And then when he saw the woman, he, it, was, it wasn't like, this is what I'm going to call her. It was, he, his jaw dropped. He was amazed. All of a sudden, everything he had ever longed for was right in front of him. And God brought the woman to the man. He said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, she's, she's me. She's, she's everything like me, but not. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So that's what woman means, out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. So then we, everything's great. We're in paradise, right? But then what happens? The fall. The fall happens. The serpent comes in, tempts the woman. The woman is, you know, she kind of knows that she's not supposed to eat from the tree, but Satan kind of twists God's words and tempts her, and then she partakes of the tree. And then there's a curse. So in verse uh, 17, Then to Adam God said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, there's a curse. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So when you're gardening this spring and this summer and the little, you know, the weeds come up, it's because of this very curse, because they rejected God's command. And you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, 
For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. So that was the curse. Uh, and I, I kind of, I'm missing the per, part that I'm looking for. Oh well, guess I'm not supposed to read there this morning. Turn with me back to First Peter chapter three. Sorry about that. I should have prepared a little better on that section. First Peter chapter three. I told you to keep your finger in it, and I did not. First Peter chapter 3. Husbands, this is your call. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, meaning your wives, with understanding. Give honor to your wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Here's a big reason. If you want the Lord to hear your prayers, God says treat your wife right. The Ten Commandments deal with man's relationship with God. You know, you shall have no other gods before you. You shall not, you know, and, and then the, it goes on to the commandments about between man and man. Here's how you are to treat one another. Jesus was approached by the Pharisees, and the Pharisees said, uh, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And they were trying to trip him up, and he said, well, that's easy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, second one is like it and equal to it. You shall love your neighbor like you love yourself. Of course, we hear that commandment, and one of the Pharisees and the, the legalists that, that came up to him, they said, well, who's my neighbor? <laughs> who's my neighbor? Well, who's, who is your neighbor? It's anybody that's close to you. If you're limiting that, then you're saying, well, who can I not love is what you're really saying. So many times we get caught up in this, who am I, how, I need to love my neighbor like I love myself, and here's the deal. You can see it in Christian families. You can see it all over the place. One of the reasons, and it's become a joke, you even talk about pastor's kids. That one of the reasons is because ministers, people that know Jesus and know the truth, they don't serve one another at home. They don't wash their families in the water of the word. So if you want to love your neighbor, that begins at home. It begins at home. If it's not happening at home, you won't do it outside of your home. So I guess that would be my encouragement to you today. If you want to live for the Lord, you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the signs is that you'll be thankful, you'll be joyful, you'll be submissive to one another. And where that starts is in the marriage relationship. And what he says at the end of chapter uh, 5 is he says this, and I'm going to sum it up in a very simple, it's not the verses, but what he's saying is, if you have a bad marriage, it's a bad witness as a Christian. If you have a good marriage, it's a good witness. Because all of your marriage is supposed to be a type a billboard, if you will, that points people to the relationship that Jesus has with his church. If you say, I follow Christ and he's redeemed my life, and yet your marriage relationship is all jacked up because neither one of you are following the Lord or one of you isn't following the Lord, it's a bad witness because if God is your God and he can't even redeem or reconcile the relationship in your home, what's to say that he can reconcile relationships that are way more broken, way more separated? What's to say that he can deal with racism? What's to say that he can deal with uh, people that don't like you at work? What's to say that he can bring people together that would never talk? Where's the power? If he can't redeem the relationship going on in your home, what's that say about the God you serve? It says that he's powerless. And the relationship he's given us in marriage is, 
It's always been so that God could reveal his love for the church through Jesus, the husband. He's the head of the church. And so, with that said, let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your patience with us.